Hey, welcome, welcome to 1122. If you've got your Bible, grab it, and, and we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2. Uh, we are in the second week of this Love is Born series, our Advent series, and today is our Compassion Sunday. This is Compassion Weekend, and I just want to, um, I just want you to relax a little bit, okay, because maybe you've heard stories, and, and I just want you to know that there's really three different ways that I could approach Compassion Sunday, and as long as I get to be the pastor of this church and, and I have breath in my lungs, we will, every year we will do Compassion Sunday, Compassion Weekends, that we will, um, we will rescue children from poverty in Jesus' name over and over and over and over, okay? Um, and, and, so, and, and, and so there's three, real, there's three ways that, that I could address this. One is I could focus the sermon on you. And, and I just need you to know that of these three approaches, none of them are better or bad or any of that, and and. In the future years, I will do all three styles of sermons when it comes to compassion. One of them is I could focus it on you. I could talk about um, how much you've been blessed and how God's given you so much and God didn't give you all that you have so that you could have all that you want, but so that others could have all that they need. And maybe you heard that when we were about two years old as a service, we weren't even a church yet. Most of you weren't around then. Um, It was our second Compassion Sunday, and I lined up the back of the sanctuary with trash cans. And every single person that walked in the door, we gave them a packet. And then I preached a very compelling, emotionally manipulative sermon. And at the end of it, I basically said, you've got two options. You can either sponsor a kid or you can throw them in the trash. And people got mad at me. And they were like, I can't believe you would say that. How dare you? People were crying. And I was like, I hope you cry because they got to eat out of the trash. I mean, it was awesome. Okay, so I did that. But we sponsored all the kids. So whatever. (laughs) But we're not doing that. We're not doing that today. Um, and in fact, I was talking to a guy uh, who's now a deacon at our church, and that was his first time he ever visited 1122. And he was like, I am never coming back here, ever, ever, ever. And as he was telling me that, I was like, well, did you sponsor a kid? He was like, yeah, too. So it works. That's not what we're doing today. We're not aiming it at you. The other thing that we could do <coughs> is we could aim the, I could aim the sermon at the kids, at the incredible need that there is in the lives of these children and what extreme poverty does to people and to families. And, and, and there will be days that I preach those sermons again. I mean, last year when we put up the pictures of Cadot Brazil and the children fighting away the vultures to find food in the dump, we could do that. I, you know what I wanted to do last year? I wanted to put like a dead rotting deer carcass in here so it would smell like the dump and have everybody walk in and be like, oh my gosh, and be like, that's where they eat, you know, that kind of thing. But we're not doing that this year either. So you could point it at, at you, I could point it at the need, again, which is so real. But this year what I wanted to do is I just wanted to point it at Jesus. Like, what does Jesus think about Compassion International? What does Jesus think about rescuing children from poverty in Jesus' name? And here's a big part of the reason why. It really has been because of your, your maturity and your obedience and your willingness to step up year after year after year and sponsor so many children. Because... Um, we sponsor over 3,000 children as a church right now. That, that The Church of 1122 sponsors more children per capita than any other church in the history of Compassion International. Amen. Amen. And this is not a competition, but we are winning. You know what I mean? So, <clears throat> so with that in mind, um, I, I, I'm, this is not like the guilt-laden sermon, okay? So everybody can just relax a little bit. We're just going to talk about uh, what do you bring Jesus? What do you bring King Jesus uh, this Christmas. And the reason we were going to talk about that is because where we are in this series, we're going to look at the three, at the wise men, the magi, 
And, and, and I just got to tell you this too. Um, I am not the anti-Christmas guy, okay? I'm not going to tell you to buy less presents for your kids or buy less presents for other people. If you run out of people to buy presents for, buy me something, okay? I like a camo and a large, extra large, depending on the cut, all right? You, I will receive all the gifts. In fact, probably my favorite part about Christmas is presents. I love the whole thing about presents. I like giving my kids presents. I really like receiving presents. I like presents, and, and I don't care, call me unspiritual, whatever, it gets worse, okay? But I love that part of Christmas. I love Santa Claus and the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and the claymation. I love all that stuff. In fact, if you were to come inside and look at my house, this is what it looks like, okay? We got lights everywhere, this is it. We got surfboards and deer head. If you don't like that, you won't like this church either, okay? But I love Christmas. And let me just warn you. If you're one of those people that wants to fire off an email to me this week about how Christmas was a pagan holiday and it was the winter solstice that Constantine tried to adopt, whatever, save your email. Can I just tell you this? Drink some eggnog, relax, watch a little Rudolph, and focus on Jesus, all right? But we don't want to hear it here, all right? Keep your humbug stuff to yourself. We love Christmas. I love Christmas. And I really love the gifts. How many of you are finished Christmas shopping? If you're finished Christmas shopping, raise your hand high. All right, very 1122, almost none of us. Good job. I'll see you at Walmart on Christmas Eve, all right? And if you want to experience how, how grand the grace of God is, go to Walmart on Christmas Eve and be like, he loves everybody. Wow. Okay, it's be good for your soul. So, now, listen, my parents, my parents were incredible gift givers. They really knew how to give good gifts. I've told you this before. When I was in the sixth grade, I got a motorcycle when I was in the sixth grade. I think it's a great idea for every sixth grader to get a motorcycle on Christmas, all right? If you're in sixth grade, you can write that down. Um, I got a 66 Mustang when I was 16 years old, okay? So my parents were really, really good gift givers. Um, Let me just warn some of you that are kind of new to the gift-giving deal. Listen, boys, uh, if you're dating a girl, you've got to get just the right gift, all right? A gym membership, I know you think you're helping. That is not a good idea. Okay, and let me tell you one other thing. Married guys already know this, but listen, guys that have a girlfriend, listen. And if she says, you don't have to get me anything this year, don't believe her. She's a liar, right? It is a test, and you could fail that miserably. So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 2, and maybe this is where the whole gift-giving thing came from when the wise men bring gifts to Jesus. But I want to look at, um, they're going to help us answer the question, what do you bring a king for Christmas. So Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, let me blow up all of your nativity sets real quick, okay? <clears throat> First of all... Um, If you'll notice, it says after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Now, they're not in Bethlehem anymore. They're in Jerusalem. Um, So, and I know, listen, if you go to your grandma's Christmas pageant and the wise men come walking in with the shepherds, please don't stand up and be like, heretics, my pastor told me. No, no, no. Just relax. And you don't have to go home and throw the three wise men out of your nativity set. They can stay right there worshiping Jesus too. But um, they weren't there with the shepherds, Okay. The wise men didn't show up at the manger, but they show up about two years later. This isn't like eight pounds, six ounce swaddling baby Jesus. This is like two-year-old toddler Jesus. They show up about two years later, and they don't show up at the manger. They show up in a house. We'll see this in a second. And the Bible never says that there's three of them. They just bring three gifts. 
So maybe it was one guy and he was, you know, or two guys and they, they were overly generous. Or maybe it was like 15 dudes and they all, you know, pointed up together and got three gifts. And nowhere in the scriptures does it ever say that the wise men are kings. I think it just rhymed in the, in the little drummer boy song. And so that's how we, we came to believe that they were kings. But it never says that. <clears throat> but here's the big deal. Here's the, here's the biggest deal. Is that... Um, for, uh, according to all social customs, the wise men, the magi from the east, should never show up to the Jewish Messiah, King Jesus, birthday party, ever. Because they were the wrong people from the wrong side of the tracks that believed the wrong thing. So one of the things we'll see, even right here at Christmas, in the Christmas text, over and over and over, is that the gospel, that the Messiah, is for all people. All kind of people, all colored people, all age people, all different kind of backgrounds. And in fact, you know what one of our, our deep desires here at the Church of 1122 is? Is that we would like to be that kind of church too. A movement for all people. And, and I'll just say it just straight up like this. If you don't look like me and you're here today, we want you to go get more of you and bring them back with you. And you are welcome in this place. And we, it is, we are praying so hard that our church would look more and more and more like the kingdom of God in heaven when we get there, full of every tribe and tongue and nation all over. Amen? Amen. And so this is a big deal that, the, that really these pagan men from a different nation, they come to worship Jesus. And not only that, this is a big deal for us too, is that they got there in a very bad way. You see, these wise men were astrologers. It was like a pagan religion. So they didn't even get there right. They didn't find out about Jesus through Sunday school or a disciple group or Christian television, but they were studying the stars. They were like soothsayers, and somehow God even spoke to their hearts in, in the wrong way to lead them to the right place. You know, God has used a lot of hurt and pain and misbelief to bring you here today, and apparently God is okay with that because he is drawing people from all nations unto him. Verse 3. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. So the wise men show up and they go, they're looking for a king. So they go to the king's house and knock on the door and like, hey, King Herod is, is the king Messiah here because we saw his star and we know he's somewhere in this town. And so essentially what Herod does, this very evil man, we're going to talk about him a lot um, next week. He says, um, hold on. And he gets all the Bible scholars and the Bible nerds and the most religious Jewish religious people together. And he goes, anybody know where the Messiah is going to be born? And here's what's crazy. These men go, yeah, that's a piece of cake. All you got to do is, is you got to uh, just look in the Bible. And they quote Micah, and they say, yeah, the, the Bible is very, very clear, and it says that the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. You know what scares me a little bit about that for me and you? That over and over and over in the Bible, it seems like the most religious people, the people that know their Bibles the best, were the first ones to miss Jesus. And I'm going to tell you, it's most scary at Christmas because you can get caught up in all the Jesus stuff and actually miss the Jesus of Christmas. The whole point of the whole thing 
It's also just scary um, in your own walk or in your own church activity that you could get so busy just reading the book and reading the book that you never bump into the one that the book is all about. And his name is Jesus. It's really, really sad. And it happens in the South all the time that people learn all this stuff about Jesus, but they don't actually know Jesus. It'd be like, it'd be like those of you that Facebook stalk people, and you know that you do. You know where those people are. You know what they're doing. You know what they had for dinner. You even have a picture of it. And you'd spend all this time, effort, and energy just being like, ooh, they checked in here and they checked in there. Like, 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 like. But you don't actually know them. There's a lot of people in church right now, and it's like you're Facebook stalking Jesus. You know where he is, and you know where he's going to show up, and you know what he's into. You just don't know him. That was what was happening here in King's Herod, in King Herod's court. It would be sort of like... <clears throat> Missing the point of going on a date with my wife. If I took Gretchen, my wife, out on a date and I'm sitting there across from her and I'm watching videos online, YouTube videos of how to date my wife. And I get to the part in the YouTube video about how you shouldn't watch videos while you're on your date. And she's going, what are you doing? I'm going, hold on, woman. I'm trying to learn about you. Well, it's not enough to learn about her, but I need to get to know her. You see, that can happen. Let me tell you what's going to happen to some of you in the room today is that from God's word, we're going to lay out how you could come face to face and eyeball to eyeball with Jesus and you might miss him. You might miss him. Because as soon as we start talking about sponsoring kids, you're going to be like, yeah, but what about, and I don't have to, and all of this kind of stuff, whatever. I just pray that the Holy Spirit would just just pierce a hardened heart and that you could come face to face with Jesus. Because here's the thing. These men that Herod brings in, they know their Bible really well, but none of them are packing up their stuff to go see the Messiah. But these, but these wise men are. And so, verse 7, And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. Verse 8, And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. It's not what he really wanted to do. Verse 9, And after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Verse 10, and when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child. Notice it doesn't say baby in a manger, but a child in a house. But going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. Why? Because that's what you do in the presence of a king. You see, these wise men, even though they came from the wrong place and, and, and didn't believe all the right things to get there, when they came into the presence of Jesus, they bowed down and worshipped him. Why? Because that's what you do in the presence of a king. And remember, he's two years old. I've never met a two-year-old in my entire life that I wanted to bow down and be like, you are amazing. No, I don't even like two-year-olds, all right? We just kind of endure to your own until they get cuter when they get a little bit older. And so, when they see King Jesus, they bow down and they worship him. You know what else they didn't do? They didn't just pat him on the head and kind of patronize him like often we do with baby Jesus at Christmas. But they understood that he is a king. And then, this is where we're going to spend the majority of our time. This is what we know most about, about the wise men. <clears throat> and then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold <clears throat> and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So when these magi 
bring Jesus gifts. Um, apparently, they are, the gifts are well received. And there are three things that the gift of the wise men do to two-year-old toddler Jesus. The first one is this. The first one is that the gifts pointed to the true identity of Jesus. The gifts pointed to the true identity of Jesus. Because apparently everybody else in the neighborhood is like, well, that Jesus kid is so well-behaved. Why can't you be more like Jesus? You know, what would Jesus do? <clears throat> but when, when the Magi bring gifts, they're, they're not worried about toddler Jesus. What they're doing is they're pointing to the true identity of Jesus. You see, they bring in gold and frankincense and myrrh. And why in the world would you give a two-year-old gold? It, it doesn't seem like a great two-year-old gift unless you really believe he's the king. And gold is what you bring to a king. And so when these wise men bring gold to, the, to Jesus, two-year-old Jesus, they're saying, we by faith understand and know and believe that you are the king. And so in 1 Timothy chapter 6, the Bible says this, the Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And so when the Wise men, open up this gift of gold. It is to declare that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And the second thing they bring is they bring frankincense. Now, frankincense was, it's like incense that was used in, um, in the altar in the first century temple. And what frankincense did, you would light it and it would, you know, smoke up in the air. And it was a, it was a, um, a tangible way for God's people to see what happened when we pray. That when we pray and our prayers are lifted up to God, that God hears our prayers. And that prayers aren't just about God listening to us, but prayer is also about us listening to God. And so when these wise men bring in frankincense, what they are declaring about Jesus is that this little boy, this two-year-old Jesus, that he is a prophet of God. That we believe that he is not only is a king, but he's also a prophet. And he's going to talk to his heavenly father, and his heavenly father's going to listen. And this might be even be more important. And the heavenly father's going to speak to him, and he's going to speak on behalf of the heavenly father. That's what prophets did. If you look to all throughout the Old Testament and even into the New, the, the job of the prophet is to speak on behalf of God. That's what we'll see over and over and over in books like Isaiah and Amos and all the prophets and Jeremiah. It will say things like, thus saith the Lord. And they would speak on behalf of God. And so these, these wise men, what they are saying is that this little boy is going to grow up to be a man. And he's going to tell us what God is like. And so when Jesus would stand in front of people, he would tell us what God thinks. What God thinks about you and what God thinks about me. And what God thinks about certain situations in this world. And he was going to tell us God is like a dad who's looking for his lost children. You see, they knew that he was a prophet. In John chapter 12, verse 49, Jesus says this about himself. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. So these gifts proclaim that Jesus is king and that he's a prophet and that also they gave him myrrh. They gave him myrrh. Now, again, we don't know what, you don't know what myrrh is. I don't know what myrrh is, so you have to look it up. Myrrh was like this aloe that smelled really good. And you think, oh, that's nice. They gave him some, like, you know, bath salts. No. It was actually used uh, in burial rituals. Because they couldn't embalm bodies, really. They didn't embalm bodies in, so they would wrap them in these burial clothes, and then they would rub myrrh because it smelled good all over them, so the decaying body wouldn't smell so bad. So let's just time out real quick. What a creepy gift to give a two-year-old, isn't it? 
Can you imagine if you had your two-year-old birthday party and your friends came over and one guy's like, hey, I built a coffin for your kid. You're like, you're not hanging out with my kid anymore. Get away from me. You're weird. But what this was representing is that, that Jesus would be the great high priest. That, for, that the reason that Jesus was born, the reason that love was born, the reason that the word became flesh is because God had to put on some flesh for the nails to pierce. He had to put cheeks on his face so that they could be slapped. He had to have a fleshly forehead for the crown of thorns to be pressed down upon it. And what these wise men saw is they understood the connection between baby Jesus and the Messiah on the cross. And that Jesus represented the three offices in the Old Testament. He was prophet. He was going to tell us what God is like. That he was priest. That he was going to be the great high priest. And that he was king. You see, because what would happen during this time in the first century is that once a year, the priest, on the Day of Atonement, they would gather all of God's people together and the people would confess their sins and they would take their sins of the people and they would lay them on the head of this goat and then they would send the goat out as far as the east is from the west. It was called the scapegoat. And then they would take this other goat, this perfect spotless lamb or goat, and they would take it into the Holy of Holies inside the temple, the place that represent where God was, and they would sacrifice the goat and they would spill the blood of the goat onto the Ark of the Covenant that held the Ten Commandments. And it was a covering over your sin for one year. But when Jesus Christ shows up on the scene, the wise men know that this is the great high priest. And he is not just a person to stand in the gap between God and sinful people for one year. But what he's going to do is going to last for all eternity. And so in the book of Hebrews chapter 9, the Bible says this, beginning in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, verse 12, he entered once and for all, into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. In other words, they understood that the manger and the cross were directly tied together. And if they're not, then one of them is meaningless. And so when they give these gifts, this is important. It's not just random Christmas presents to toddler Jesus, but it was declaring the true identity of who this little boy is. That he is king, and he is prophet, and he is priest. And so that's one of the things that the gifts of the Magi do. The second thing, and this is out of order in your notes, but I just want to do this one first. Um, is that the gifts that the Magi bring to the Holy Family, they meet the immediate needs of that family. Okay, Because you saw right here at the end of the text that we just read, that in a dream, in a dream angels come to the Magi and they say, don't go back to Harry because he's going to try to kill you. Well, if you look down in Matthew chapter 2, not only is he going to try to kill um, baby Jesus or toddler Jesus, but, but just to make sure he gets him, he's going to try to wipe out every kid two years and under. And so the angels, we're going to talk about this at, at length next week, but the angels come to Mary and Joseph and they say, you can't go back home because that's dangerous. You've got to flee. You've got to go somewhere else. And so they decide to run to Egypt. Now, if you were here last week and you heard Pastor Stone talk about Mary and Joseph, you'll remember these are poor people. Like, it's just a carpenter and a farmer's daughter. Like, how in the world are they going to afford a three-and-a-half-year trip to Egypt? Have you been to Egypt lately? I think it's expensive. I don't know. It looks expensive to me. And so how in the world are these poor little people that don't, can't even get a room in the inn, how are they going to afford a trip to Egypt for three-and-a-half years? Well, guess what? That the Magi just showed up and laid right on their doorstep gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
to underwrite this trip that they've got to Egypt for three and a half years to preserve the life of the prophet, priest, and king, Jesus. So a part of what their gifts did is it took care of the immediate needs of the Holy Family. And then the third one is this. And this one's really the most important. <clears throat> At least for us today. Is that the gifts that the wise men bring were doxological. Say that word, doxological. Good, good, good. But nine o'clock's always like the smart crowd. So <clears throat> here's, here's what I mean. The word doxology, the reason we sang the new doxology to open our service today is this. The word doxology just means to praise God. That's all it is. It just means to praise God. And so all of you that grew up, you know, Catholic and Lutheran and Presbyterian and some Methodist, and you sang the doxology every week, praise God from whom all blessings flow, that deal, okay? That's what that means. Doxology just means praise God. And when you get the gift right, it can bring great praise and honor and worship and glory to Jesus. It just can. And some of you, have you ever experienced that? Not that you're worthy to be praised, but have you ever received a gift and it's been just the right gift? And you were like, wow, like you really get me. And I really need this. And this is a real expression of what you think about me. Now again, the wrong gift does the exact opposite, right? I was talking about right and wrong gifts on Thursday and somebody told me that um, <clears throat> they'd been, this girl had been dating this guy for a long time and then they broke up right before Christmas and the girl's mom got her a cookbook called Cooking for One. Not a great gift. <clears throat> So the right gift, the right gift, the declaration that Jesus, you are prophet, priest, and king, that right gift is doxological. It brings praise to Jesus in and of itself. And maybe you've experienced this when you've gotten the right gift. It happened to me this very week, all right? I can't make this stuff up. This is just what happens in my life. So on Monday, we were going on staff retreat, our whole staff. There's a bunch of us, 50 or something. We all went on staff retreat to this glorious land called Fripp Island, South Carolina, all right? It is the most amazing place in the world. You go out there, and there's deer walking around everywhere, like squirrels. And you can just feed eight-pointers out of your hand. You're not supposed to, but whatever. So, <clears throat> and so, I, it's the crazy, and you just get up in the morning, you walk around, and you just, there's just deer everywhere. I love it. And so, when we go on staff retreat as a staff, we actually retreat. We don't, like, make it a work thing. We just kind of hang out and do a little worship at night and play golf during the day and pet eight-point deer all day. It's glorious. And so <clears throat> I sent out an email. <clears throat> I sent out an email to our staff, <clears throat> excuse me, saying, "Hey, listen, I'm going to bring my bow and a target. Okay, we're not going to shoot the deer because it's illegal for now. But we're going to bring our bows and just hang out because that's what we do." And so on Monday we're getting all packed up and ready to go on this trip, and and so um, we're taking all of our own vehicles and whatever. And so my truck is in the back back here, and we're loading it up with the stuff to go to Fripp Island. And so it's got suitcases, and it's got golf bags, so we play some golf, and it's got my bow and its bow case right back there, okay? And then we're loading it up, and then we all come in here for a little while, and we go back out to the truck to leave, and I look and go, where's my bow? And it's gone. And we look on our little surveillance cameras, and sure enough, a guy pulls up and walks to the back of my truck and steals my bow and then drives off, okay? And so if you see a man in a green and white two-tone 70s model Chevrolet with my bow, would you please bring him to me? Because I would like to introduce him to Jesus. Not like I introduce you to Jesus, more of a face-to-face -face interaction is what I'm going for, okay? <clears throat> yeah, I want to lay hands on him, if you know what I mean. And I know some of you are like, this is the pastor? Yeah, pray for me, I need help. But 
So it's bummer. I mean, just bummer, bummer, bummer. Super bummer, right? And <clears throat> in case you don't know this, I'm an avid bow hunter. And so, sure, material things or whatever, but this is like, it's a really big deal to me. Really big deal. And, and, and I'm not a stuff guy. You know, I don't really care about stuff that much except my bow and camouflage stuff. It's the best of the, it's a Matthews Z7. That's what it is. And three of you went, ooh, okay. But the rest of you are like, huh? It's like the Cadillac of bow and arrow, okay? That's what I do. And so it's gone. And I mean, I'm bummed beyond bummed. And so we get in the car and we're driving there. And we hired a guy on our staff now that used to work at Strike Zone. And so I said, hey, Ed, call Rick at Strike Zone and we got to get this bow thing going. And, and it's going to cost me a lot of money. And honestly, I don't even know how I'm going to figure out how to make this thing happen. But I was going hunting on Friday. So, you know, I got to have something. So it really is a bummer. Well, on, on Thursday, when we get back from staff retreat, I go down to Strike Zone. And this brand new Matthews bow came out. And I'm only going to shoot a Matthews because the guys at Matthews love Jesus. They do. And they give money to missions. So it's almost like tithing, almost, okay? And so, don't believe that. Don't believe that. Don't. But I do tithe, so I can get a bow. So I go there, and I pick it out, and, and, and I'm figuring this will be, unless somebody steals it from me, this will be my bow for the next 10 or 15 years. And so I get the best and get it all decked out and it's ready to go. And then I go to the counter and I'm about ready to pay for it. And two things happen. First, when I walked in the store, somebody from our church had heard that my bow had been stolen. And there was, there was a, a, a gift card that would cover about 20% of the bow waiting on me. That's cool. And then when I'm ready to pay for it, the guy that runs the, the, the um, archery shop at Strike Zone says, um, your staff, your staff is paying for your bow. Now listen, like I don't get teared up a lot, especially like at a sporting goods store. <laughs> they can sense weakness and they will take you out, okay? <clears throat> there, could not been, there couldn't have been a more meaningful gift. And as I've said, thank you to each and every staff person that I can find and say, thank you, thank you, thank you. They, they would just reply to me, look, we need you in the woods. We know that's where you write your sermons. We wanted you to have this. And here's the thing, too. Here's why it was so powerful for me. It's not like one of you super rich people just wrote one check, okay? I know what they all make. I determine it. And, and I get it if you think I'm awesome because you get to see me at the best hour of my whole week, every week. This is it. But I work with these men and women every single day. Outside of my wife and children, they get to see the absolute worst parts of me. And yet... And yet, they pulled their money together and bought me something that was really, really important to me. And it was so stinking meaningful. I hope you get that. And so when the wise men, when they, <clears throat> when they put their life on the line and travel all the way to Jerusalem from the east, the Bible doesn't say exactly where, but they travel all the way from the east to Jerusalem, and they go to two-year-old Jesus, and they open up these gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And not only are they saying, hey, listen, you're going to have to run for three and a half years in a little while, and we're underwriting that, that trip that you're going on, but also Jesus began to understand, hey, they get me, they know exactly who I am, that I am prophet, and I am priest, and I am king. Then it is doxological. That just means that it praised God, that the gifts, because they were rightly in tune with who God is, that it brought him praise and glory. So then the question is this. So this year at Christmas, I know you're going to get a lot of stuff for a lot of people, and I think you should. 
but what do you bring King Jesus this year? Because, you know, all of us are like the little drummer boy, right? We have no gift to bring. So what do we bring a king? I mean, what do you bring God Almighty Sovereign who has everything? And in fact, if you're like, oh, I'll get gold and frankincense and myrrh, that's not a good idea. You know why? Because now he's already established that he's the king of kings. And um, prophetic Jesus has done. The next time he's coming back, it's judge Jesus. And um, his high priestly work is done. You don't bring myrrh to a guy that's already come out of the tomb because the tomb is empty. So what do you bring when you have nothing to bring? Because that's a little bit what it's like, right? Um, like how many of you guys, your children are going to get you gifts for Christmas? My kids do. And, and they'll come to me and be like, Daddy, you know what you got for Christmas? Well, I know how much it costs because I checked my bank account, all right? And so you didn't really get me anything. In fact, um, Christmas cost me for my own gift. That's how that works. Last year, JP comes to me, and, he's, and I knew it was from Strike Zone, and I knew it cost $12. And so when I opened it, it was 12 knives for $12. So you know they're nice, okay? And I open it up. Thank you, buddy. And then Reagan Capri, my little daughter, she brings me a little tube. It cost $1, and it was in a little tube. And I open it up, and it's um, scent-free lip balm. That's what it is. In a camo case. And she said, Daddy, it's hunting lipstick. All right? <laughs> Amen. <clears throat> but, <laughs> but I was no more wealthy after receiving the gifts from my own kid than when I started. It actually cost me. It's what, it's what C.S. Lewis talks about in Mere Christianity when he talks about sixpence, none the richer. If your child comes to you and asks for money to buy you a gift, then you, you would be a fool to think you're, you're sixpence richer. So what do we bring God who has everything and is everything? Well, I got a couple of warnings. Some of you may think, well, I think we should bring him, you know, large gifts of sacrifice. Now, here's the thing. I'm gonna, uh, most of us think about when, what, what do you bring a king? We kind of go in three different areas, all right? We think about three things that you hear about a lot in church. And the crazy thing about these three different things that you can bring to God is that they can either bring God great delight or great disdain. They just can. And so some people think, oh, I know how I'm going to impress God. I'm going to give large offerings, large sacrifice. Let me just warn you, in Micah chapter 6, verse 6, the Bible says this, with what shall I come before the Lord? I mean, that's kind of the question we're asking. Like, what do you bring King Jesus? With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? With, will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams and with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? In other words, what if I write God a big fat check for Christmas? What does he think about that? And here's what God replies. He says, he has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And some of you might be saying, does that mean I don't have to tithe? Well, if you think you have to, then it's not really a tithe. You see, if we're giving to God out of response because we understand that he's first, he first loved us, and he proved it by giving his best, and so our response is we bring our best to him first, yeah, then it brings God great glory because your heart is in line with who God is, and you're responding to who he is and what he's done. But if you think you can buy him off with great sacrificial giving, then it actually causes God great disdain. And he says, no way. And part of the way to know if your heart and my heart is in line with who God is, is this. One is to do justice. Now, there's a lot of justice talk right now. 
But here's what justice means. Justice means giving people their rights or giving people what they are due. That's just what it means. And all throughout the scriptures, God has a special place in his heart when there's injustice going on. And he says, my people should be doing something about that. And let me just tell you, you know what little children are due? They're due when they have the right to eat and get an education and have some clothes and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where you live, especially if you're a little child, where you live should not determine whether you live. So, if you bring great sacrificial giving to God, but don't have a place in your heart to alleviate the injustice of this world, God is saying, no, that is not what you bring to me. Some of you go, okay, well, I know what we bring. Um, <clears throat> we gather together and we sing in songs. I mean, isn't that what the little drummer boy taught us? By the way, he's not in the Bible either. You, you got to look it up for yourself. He's not there. And so is, is, is that what we do? I mean, because that's what we do at 1122 often, right? We get together and we sing him songs. Well, let me, let me point you to Amos chapter 5. Here's what God says. In Amos chapter 5, verse 21, God says, I hate, I despise your feast. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies which makes you a little nervous if you're the lead pastor of a church because we solemnly assemble every single week. And what God is saying is, again, there are some assemblies and God takes great delight in and there are other assemblies that, that, that really make him angry. I mean, read it for yourself. Look at verse 22. He says, even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your hearts. I will not listen. I mean, think about that. The God, that there are some people that are singing to God. Maybe today in church all over the world that there are people singing today to God. They're in a building with God's name on it, singing songs to and about God, and he's going, shut up. Just shut up. I don't want to hear it anymore. Why? Verse 24, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. So if you think you're showing up and you're going to impress God because you sing to him, and yet at the same time you're not taking care of his people, he says, shut up. I mean, can you imagine a friend of yours coming to you, singing your praises and abusing your children? Or they were to come to you and say, oh, I love you so much and you're my best friend. Here, I wrote this poem for you. But they saw your own children in great need and said, man, I ain't helping. They don't care about your kids. I just care about you. As a parent, you go, that doesn't work what God's talking about here. Or if you're married, think about this, wives. What if your husband was cheating on you and then every week he came home, just on Sunday, he would show up after cheating on you all weekend and then he would sit with you on Sunday and say, baby, I've written you a love song. What would you say? <laughs> you keep your love song to yourself. It actually makes it worse. You see, that's, that's what God's saying here. Oh, but I want to bring God a great worship service. If it's in response to, to who God is and what he's done for you, then praise God, he inhabits the praises of his people. If you think God's impressed with three chords in the truth, and at the same time, you're just denying taking care of his children, then he says, yeah, keep it to yourself. Or how about Isaiah 58? Some people will think, oh, okay, I know what God likes. God likes religious activity, like praying and fasting and reading my Bible and being in a Bethmore Bible study and going on mission trips and doing all that kind of like personal, devotional sort of stuff. Again, is personal devotion bad? Well, 
If you think it puts God in your debt, actually, yeah, it causes, causes him great disdain. If it's in response to who God is and what he's done, and it just stirs your affections for him, then he, he loves it and enjoys it. And a part of the way that we know is our, our hearts growing bigger and bigger and bigger for the things that are closest to the heart of God. So here's what Isaiah 58 says. The people are asking God, and they've said, why have we fasted and you not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? In other words, God, we did some really religious stuff. I mean, we're not even just like average Christians that go to church occasionally and put a fish on our car, but we fasted. I mean, that, that's like advanced Christianity right there. And God, you're not paying attention to it at all, so why not? It says, behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down with his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? In other words, when you fast, are you just saying, hey, everybody, look at me, look how religious I am? Whatever the activity is, you know? Hey, I went to church today, I prayed, I even sang with my hands up. God, you had to see that. And then God goes on to say, will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is, is not the fast that I choose. In other words, God's about to roll out his Christmas list. Hey, you want to bring me something for Christmas? Is this not the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of, wick- to loose the bonds of wickedness. To undo the straps of the yoke. To let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Verse 7. It says... Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house and when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own people? And then shall your light break forth in the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. And then you shall call and the Lord will answer. And you shall cry and he will say, here I am. And if you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and the speaking wickedness, and if you pour yourself out for the hungry, which is an interesting phrase, because most most of us are full physically, and most of us are full of ourselves. And then the Bible says, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom be as noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in the scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a water garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. In other words, if you take care of the poor and don't do it in Jesus' name, it can also bring disdain to him too. But a response to the things that are close to the heart of God, when we respond, it's evidence that what God has been doing, because we know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, it's evidence that we are abiding in him, that we are close to him, that our hearts are growing for the things that are so close to his heart. So this Christmas, do you bring God great sacrifice? If it's in response to who he is, but not if you're trying to put him in your debt. Do you bring him worship songs? Again, if you're trying to impress him with your, how good you sing, then no. But if it's in response to who God is, then yes. Is it, is it religious activity? Do you do Bible study? Do you host, a, do you host a, a Christmas in a box at your house? Not if you're trying to impress him, but if it's in response. And one of the ways that you'll know it's in response to what God wants 
is by seeing what's close to God's heart. So I'll tell you the truth. When the little drummer boy comes up and says, I have a song to sing and ba bum bum if he's hitting his sister with a stick before he comes and plays for baby Jesus, Jesus is like, get out of my face. Your song is meaningless to me. But if his heart is in tune with the heart of God, then it brings him great pleasure. So this year, this year, what do you bring King Jesus? Well, the good news is, is that Jesus answered it himself. In Matthew chapter 24, the disciples come to Jesus and they ask a question. Hey, what's it going to be like at the end of the world when you return? And then in all of chapter 24, um, Jesus talks about, really, it's kind of weird stuff, the abomination of desolation and signs of the end of the age. And if you're into that stuff, read on, okay? Awesome. And then for people like me, when he gets to chapter 25, he's like, you look like this isn't sinking in. So let me tell you three stories. And in Matthew 25, he tells three stories to talk about when King Jesus returns. The first one is the parable of the virgin, right? And all that means is don't miss the party, that you better receive me as Lord and Savior before I return. The second one he tells is called the parable of the talents. In other words, don't waste your time, that you do with what I've given you exactly what I would have you do with it. Don't waste your time. And then the third one he, he tells is the parable of the sheep and the goats. And we learn a whole lot about the heart of Jesus in this parable. And what he says is there will come a day and I will return on a horse and I will gather all people under me, all nations, all tribes, all people under me. And I'll separate them like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And the sheep, I'll put on my right, good job. And the goats, I'll put on my left. You're not really goats, but you sat on the wrong side. Okay, so, and he says to the sheep on his right, he says, congratulations. Well done, my good and faithful servant. My father has prepared a place for you in heaven, in his presence, with him forever and ever. Amen. Because when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was in prison, you came and visited me. When I was sick, you took care of me. When I was naked, you gave me clothes. And then the sheep, the people over here, right, they love Jesus, but they, they hadn't quite caught on to this part. And they go, um... Hey, we're not arguing with the part where we get to go to heaven. We like that. But we don't remember that. We, just, we don't remember seeing you in any of those situations, hungry or, or thirsty or in prison. We don't remember any of that. And then that's when Jesus says this very famous verse that is the point today. And the king, this is Jesus, will say to them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did it to me what he said. And then the goats, he tells y'all something too, but it's like a go to hell message and it's Christmas, so I'm just not even going to share that part with you. Just be a sheep, okay? And so that's what he says. So you know what that leads me to believe as I am, I've been studying this text? You know what you bring King Jesus this year for Christmas? According to Amos and according to Isaiah and, and according to Malachi and then also according to Jesus' words himself in Matthew chapter 25, is that you care for the least of these. And that's why we do, that's why we partner with Compassion International. And I just need you to know this, that as a church, we are all in with Compassion International. First and foremost, here's why. Because their mission is to release children from poverty in Jesus' name. And I've just got to tell you, it's kind of become hip with a lot of social justice organizations that started out Christian organizations with Jesus in their name, and through some um, marketing consultants, they decided to remove all the Christian language so that they could raise more money. I am not interested in sending well-fed people to hell. I'm just not. 
right? I am, I am deeply concerned about all human suffering, temporary human suffering on this earth and eternal human suffering, all right? And so we, as a church, we are all in with Compassion International. In fact, we've taken up special offerings before and done things like um, put water purification systems in people's homes. Um, we've, we've given nets to prevent malaria from spreading. We've done, you've done that before. Uh, we also sponsor what's called a CSP, a child survival program, that you, every time you respond to God with your tithes and offerings, a part of what that does, costs about $25,000 a year, is it saves the lives of babies in Rikunjiri, Uganda. And you, you, you've saved dozens and dozens and dozens of babies' lives. It takes care of them from prenatal all the way up to about three years old. You do that. Also, um, we do sponsorship, and that's what we're going to talk about today, that today you are going to have the opportunity to respond to the gospel, to respond to Jesus by doing to one of the least of these, by feeding and clothing and educating and all those things. And that's what these packets are. There's packets up front. There's packets at all the tables. I'll tell you how to do that in just a second. We do that. And again, I've told you, we sponsor, I think it's over 3,000 kids right now. Um, we also, we planted a church last year. This is pretty awesome. In Cado, Brazil, which is the voodoo capital of South America, where literally the children eat out of the, the garbage dumps that we talked about last year, that you and I, we together as a church, we planted a church in Cado, Brazil, and it's like a third world mega church that on a weekend right now, they're running about 250 people at the church that you built. And we can sponsor all of those kids. I think we may have sponsored them all by now or almost all of the kids from that project. And not only that, um, you and I, we sponsor a bunch of what is, what's called LDP kids, leadership development program kids. These are kids that when they graduate like from high school, if they're the best of the best then, and they have the opportunity to go to college but can't afford it, that we've sponsored, I don't know, seven or eight of those kids. And now those kids that we started with years ago, they're all graduating from college and getting married, some of our LDP kids that you help sponsor. In fact, um, a bunch of them now work for ACOA Refuge, you know, leaving Tyler's place that, that we, we sponsor in Uganda. So that's pretty cool. It's like our family members are hiring each other. And then there's one kid, and he's, he's an LDP kid, and he just, he's about to get married this next year. And he started an electronics shop in Uganda called Joby and Jerry's Electronics. Isn't that great? So if this church planning thing doesn't work out for me, I'm going to go fix radios in Uganda. So I I tell you all that to just let you know, I'm not trying to beat you up. This isn't about guilt. But if you're going to be a part of the church of 1122, you know what we do? We sponsor kids. That's just what we do. It's just part of who we are, okay? And I need to tell you this too, that I would never ask you to do something that I'm not going to do first. I'm the leader here. I'll go first. And the Martins are all in. And the way we got connected to Compassion International, it all started with the faithfulness of my wife, Gretchen. We were at a youth specialties conference 14 years ago, and Gretchen went up to a Compassion table, and she pulled off this kid's packet, okay? His name's Alvaro, but we call him Blue Boots, because when we got him 14 years ago, he was a little guy, had galoshes up to his thighs, and he just, you know, that was him. She got him. She said, we just sponsored a kid. We hadn't even been married a year. I didn't know you could say no, so I said, yes, ma'am, and that's how it began, okay? So we're in. So we sponsor him. We sponsor Alvaro. We're actually going to go see him this next year. We sponsor Fidel uh, from Kenya. He has the same birthday as JP. Um, We sponsor Maria. She is from Brazil. We got another Maria from Brazil in here. Yeah, there she is. Uh, We sponsor Shyla. I told you her story last year. She was sexually abused as a little child, and uh, so we sponsored her. 
And I got to see her a year later. So I, I met her, you know, the very first time I met her, she wouldn't come near me. It wasn't awesome. One year later, just ran up into my arms calling me Uncle Joby. I'm telling you, Compassion International changes lives through the gospel. I'll see her over and over again. Um, we, we sponsor Sonia uh, from Indonesia. That's because we went through the mobile experience that we hosted last time. Um, and, and so we sponsored her. Uh, we sponsor Brandy. This is Brandy. She lives in Uganda. I've been in her house twice. The first time I went to visit her, her grandmother was so overwhelmed with gratitude that she gave me a live chicken. Just a, here you go. Thank you. She only had like two chickens. I don't even like to share like a wing, all right, because I'm selfish. She gave me a whole chicken, and then it was hard for me to explain to her, I know, but Delta frowns upon me taking live African chickens back to Jacksonville. So gave that back. And then, um, and then Grace, what a great name. Grace is also from Uganda, and she's born on Christmas Day, December the 25th, and I got to spend some time with her last year. Now, here's the thing. Um, I just want you to do what I've done. Now, we've gone a little overboard, I understand, uh, and, and here, here's what I want you to do. Here's what I would like the norm at 1122 to be. I would like for you to sit down together as a family and eat dinner, which that just by itself would be a great idea for your family, and then count, and the number of people sitting at your dinner table should represent the same number of people uh, compassion children that, children that you have up on your refrigerator. See how that works? So if you make a new baby, congratulations, you sponsor a new kid. And that's how it works, all right? And then eventually your own kids are grown and gone, and they eventually too. They grow up and graduate and, and all of that. That's what I'd like you to do. And we've got more, and the reason, honestly, is because I'm so compelled by my own sermon every year. That really is it. It's $38 a month, and even though we're, you know, we got like a bridge hand here, I still... At the end of this weekend, we're getting another one. Why? Because I can do another $38 a month. That's just why. And here's what happens. Here's what happens. When you sponsor a kid, the same thing, the same thing happens in the life of that child and the same thing happens in your relationship with Jesus that happened when the Magi brought their gifts to Jesus. First and foremost, it points the child to the true identity in Jesus Christ. It just does. So compassion rescues children from poverty in Jesus' name. That every single project, every single packet is gospel-centered, Christ-focused, and church-based. And that's what we're about. So it is a gospel-driven ministry. Um, West Stafford, the former president, CEO, told me that, that uh, um, over 400 children a day through Compassion International receive Jesus. They respond to the gospel. I can't figure out a better mission-sending organization than you and I taking the gospel to the ends of the earth through Compassion International. So one of the first things it does is it points kids to who Jesus is. The second thing is it provides for their immediate needs. Kind of like when the Magi gave the gifts and they were able to, go to, they were able to fund their trip to, to Egypt to stay alive. Well, when you sponsor a child, guess what? They get clothes, they get food, they get an education. And here's one of the biggest ones. And they get hope. They get hope. This one's, this one's tough. This one's hard for me and you to understand. But whenever I go on compassion trips, um, I always have this very Americanized question to ask little kids. Hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know what? They, many of the children have never considered that they might grow up. And so when they find out that they've been sponsored and they have food and education and people that love them and the adults that care about them, and people in the church coming alongside families to make sure they're going to make it, it begins to open the window 
to thinking and dreaming about the future that God has in store for them. So it, it points them to the true identity in Jesus. It provides for their immediate needs. And then the third is this, is that Jesus is honored. It's doxological. When you get so overwhelmed by what Christ did for you on the cross that you think, man, I am rescued to be a rescuer. I just want to do in this kid's life what Jesus did for me. Guess what? God is honored. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. One of the ways you can praise him is by sponsoring a kid. And the impact, I could go on and on and on and on about the impact that I've seen with my own eyes, that I've touched with my own hands, that I've smelled myself. I could go on and on about the impact. But I want you to just take a second to watch this video of what actually happens, and I want you to pay attention to the, to the doxology at the end that happens. Watch this.
all the staff showed me that video in the office one day, and it just ruined me. I began to think, you know, when she says, if Jesus were here right now, I mean, I'd ask for help. Amen. And then I think I'd fall at his feet, and I'd thank him. Well, here's what I know theologically. That God inhabits the praises of his people, and when we are gathered in Jesus' name, then Jesus is here with him. So the question is, so how do you respond? How do you, how do you fall at his feet and thank him? Well, my hope and my prayer is the Holy Spirit would stir you to say, when whatever I've done for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine that we've done for Jesus. Now, I don't, I'm not trying to guilt you into anything or whatever, but if the, if the Holy Spirit has moved upon you in the way that we're going to respond today, we're going to provide needs, we're going to point people to their true identity in Christ, and we're going to praise God by sponsoring children. And so the response will be this. There are kids' packets, um, clothes pinned to this deal up front by the altars. There are tables all over the place here. And so and you'll just stand up, and when you're ready, you'll go to that place, and you will sponsor one of these kids in Jesus' name. Would you please stand up and pray with me? Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, God, um, Lord, I pray against any uh, condemnation in this room because that does not come from you. And God, we welcome the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray specifically for this little girl, Francisca, who's at our partner church in Cadeau. God, I pray that this morning, if she's at church, God, or wherever she is, that she would feel the loving embrace of our Heavenly Father. And God, I pray for every one of these children. Lord, I I pray that, that justice would roll out of this church and it would pour down onto them wherever they live. And Lord, I pray that you would be so praised, you would be so glorified this weekend, that there would be Um, this wave, this welling up of doxology to you, God. Not just in our words, not just in our activities, but in our actions of doing under the least of these and aiming it at you. God, we pray it in the good, strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And that's how we're going to respond. Go get a packet and sponsor a kid.